Well, thank you, everyone. Turning your Bibles now back to Hebrews chapter 7. So Edwin yesterday told me that I would get the pulpit at 9.32, and I laughed at him. It's 9.32. So I guess I shouldn't laugh at him. And Tavis told me when he gave me my battery pack, he said, I charge your battery, you can preach for seven hours, and now you can laugh. So... Uh, this is a passage of scripture in Hebrews chapter 7 that I, if I could, I could preach seven hours, but I don't think I could do that, nor could you stand it. But it's a wonderful passage of scripture. We're only looking at two or three verses today, but what a passage of scripture it is. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 23. You know, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life was to leave my uh, home and house where I grew up for the very last time. My mother had passed away, and my father had passed away years before that. And a few months later, we came for the last time to uh, finish things up at the house and sell it. And the very last time I was ever there, and it was uh, very nostalgic and very hard on me. Marsha and I went through the house remembering things and so forth, and it was a very, very difficult thing. You know, uh, one, of, one, of the, one of life's disappointments is to lose things you love, to lose people that you love, to uh, lose friends, to, to see the passage of time where nothing ever stays the same. Uh, you've been there. The older we get, the more we realize that nothing is permanent. Everything changes. Uh, there, there's nothing the same year after year. It all is changing. And we would love to keep some things the same, but uh, we simply cannot do that. And in the midst of our struggles with disappointment, in a, in a world with a lot of disappointments, in the midst of those, we sometimes, like Job, want to cry out, Lord, why are you doing this? Uh, you, you, why are you doing this to your own people who you love and that we love you, and yet uh, we find all these disappointments and so forth that we deal with and struggle with in life? And why is life always in flux? Uh, the biblical answers are many. Uh, we go through the scriptures talking about that and looking at the... At, some of them are complicated, but let me give you two handles here, two words that I think can define why God brings all this change and, and disappointment into our lives. One word is delight, and the other word is contrast. Uh, delight. Why does the Lord allow these things to change? Why is nothing ever the same? Why do we face disappointment and sorrow and pain and so forth in life? Why do we do that? Because the Lord wants us to know that there's only one source of true life. To delight in Him is the greatest privilege of anyone in the world. And we only delight in Him when we recognize that other things are not our delight. Only Christ is the fountain of living water. Everything else is a broken cistern. Only Christ is the source of life. Everything else is a dead end. And we see those things as we move our way through life with the, seeing the disappointments and the struggles. These things draw our attention to Christ. The second word I would mention is contrast, and that's particularly pertinent to the book of Hebrews. Throughout the book of Hebrews, uh, pretty much the theme has been Christ is superior to everything. He is contrasting Jesus Christ to everything and everyone that's ever been, and Christ is superior to all other things. One contrast after another. And by the way, this is the basic message of Scripture. From the beginning to the end, from the Garden of Eden onward, the picture we find here is that, that Jesus Christ is superior to everything. And until we figure that out, we'll move the wrong, always move the wrong direction in life. And in the book of Hebrews in particular, he's been pointing this out from the very beginning that Christ is superior to everything in the past and everything in the present and everything there will ever be. Christ is superior. And in particular, in the passages that we're looking at in the middle of Hebrews, 
We're looking at the priesthood of Christ and that Christ's priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the past, of the Old Testament past, that his, his priesthood is, is superior to all those things. Everything before him was inferior. He is superior. Now, the specific issue we're looking at today concerning the priesthood of Christ and the Old Testament is that it's duration. We've looked earlier about a number of things where Christ's priesthood is different than the Old Testament priesthood. In particular, in chapter 7, we have seen that Christ's priesthood is after the order of some guy named Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. A major shift, which, which indicates a major shift in the way what God deals with his people as he moves from one covenant of law to the, to the covenant of grace in the New Testament era. And, the, and this priesthood change signals that. That's a big deal. But today we're not looking at that. We've worked through that. We're looking at the duration. Christ's priesthood is superior because it, it lasts. And we're looking at two things in particular here. We're looking at the everlasting priesthood of Christ, and we're looking at the application of that to our lives. We're going to see that his priesthood is everlasting, and then we're going to see what it means to us. So let's start off, first of all, with his everlasting priesthood. Chapter 7, verse 23 and 24. In verse 23, he's looking at the Old Testament priesthood. He says, the former priest, on the other hand, existed in in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Now, this is pretty straightforward. It's not particularly profound. The Old Testament priesthood was inferior in a number of ways, but one of those ways is that, that every one of those priests in the past died. Okay, Some of them were good priests. Some were bad priests. A lot of them were in between priests. But one thing they all had in common is that every one of them are dead. Every one of them died. That's the that's inferiority of that priesthood, as Christ will, as we'll see, Christ is not that way. I'm reminded of a quote by John Wesley. Most of you know John Wesley. He's considered one of the probably top three or four uh, Christian leaders since the Reformation. Uh, he accomplished more in his 80-some years than most people would accomplish in a millennia. The Lord used him in wonderful ways, and even though there's some of his theology we struggle with, Overall, the Lord greatly used him. At, toward the end of his life, even as he reached well into his 80s and had co- accomplished so much, he humbly said something that is very, very true. He said, God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. The work of Christ is not dependent upon anyone, including a John Wesley, including a George Whitfield, including a, a Jonathan Edwards, or anyone else. His, his work goes on, but his works, workmen die. And the Old Testament priest died, but his work did not stop. Instead, it moved on to Jesus Christ. And that is what we got in verse 24, the permanent nature of Christ's priesthood. He says, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Now we're looking at the permanent nature of the priesthood of Christ. The the big picture is very simple here. Uh, Christ didn't die permanently. He did die for us on the cross but he resurrected and he lives forevermore. And therefore his ministry is different. His high priesthood ministry is very different than the Old Testament priests. When Jesus died and resurrected, he then ascended into heaven. His priesthood began at the cross in his sacrifice for us. He resurrected from the dead for us. He ascended to heaven for us. He's at the right hand of the Father for us. He intercedes for us as we'll see today. 
uh, he will forevermore be our great high priest. And so his priesthood is permanent and it's superior. Now that's simple. Uh, anybody can read that and get that. The details are much more profound and much more beautiful as we look at them together. So I want to jump into some of the details. And they're wrapped around some of the words that he uses here. The first one is the word forever. It says here that, that Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever. Now I'm going to look at this word forever here. Uh, partly because this word, as we, as we look at it together, is one of three words he uses that can be translated the same way. Depending on your translation, this, this whole section could have different words out here, but they're, they're all meaning somewhat the same thing. And this is our first word forever. Uh, and so I gave you in your notes, if you get the manuscripts, which you can get from us directly, or you can get them on our network, or if you get the, uh, the sheets out there, the notes, you'll find three Greek words today. Now, normally I don't do Greek words. I don't need to impress you with my scholarship. You already know better than that. Um, uh, I I don't think most of you care about the Greek words. You're not going to go home and memorize them. Uh, And thirdly, I usually can't pronounce them. Uh, Matter of fact, if you've been here very long, you know I have a hard time with English. And so uh, pronouncing Greek words is hard. But I I would say this. uh, We don't really know how the, the ancient people pronounce these words either. So I feel I'm doing okay because you don't know either how they pronounce them. So I'm going to give it my best shot. But normally I don't do that. But this time it's so important to what he's saying. There's three different nuances by three different words that all could be translated forever. But they all mean something a little different. And they take us deeper and deeper into the wonderful truth that we have before us. So the first word forever is the word parabatos, which means unalterable. It cannot be changed. It's unalterable. A judge makes a decision. You go to court, he makes a decision, he hits the gavel, and he says, that is my decision. It's unalterable. And I don't know how many of you watch these judge shows on TV, like Judge Judy. I, I, I can't stand that. Well, no, I'm going to stop right there. But, but Judge Judy, some of you love it. She is the highest paid celebrity on TV, I believe. People love her, and I can't, uh, I'm going to stop there. And, but when, I've seen a couple Judge Judys, and I've seen her advertised on TV pretty regularly, and she will say on a regular basis, it's only my opinion that counts. Who cares what you say? Hit, I, I'm done, it's done, you've you got to do what I say. Whether she's right, whether she's wrong, whether she's nuts, doesn't make any difference. She's getting paid $100 million a year to hit that gavel and say, that's it. It's unalterable. Well, that's the word here. It's unalterable. It cannot be changed. Christ's priesthood could never be changed. It was also an ancient word used concerning the scientific uh, network of the world, the the laws, the principles that govern the universe. Uh, For example, the Lord placed in our universe many laws of nature. One is gravity. So when it comes to gravity... The whole universe uh, deals with gravity. Now, you cannot escape gravity. You can lessen gravity, but you cannot totally escape gravity. God has put that in the universal system. It is unalterable. It cannot be changed. If gravity ceased to exist, the universe would would blow up. It would implode. Gravity exists. And you might say to me, well, you know, I don't believe in God. Well, okay. And I don't believe in gravity. Okay, okay. 
But jump off a 10-story building, and I'll guarantee you, you'll start believing in gravity pretty quickly. It doesn't always mean anything what you believe. What matters is what is true. And so the priesthood of Jesus Christ cannot change. It is unalterable. You can no more dismiss Christ's and his priestly ministry for us, as we'll see what that is in a moment, than you can dismiss gravity. You can try, but you cannot do it. Jesus, one commentator said this, Jesus can never be surpassed. There can never be any substitute for him. He is and will always remain the only way to God. Then next he moves on to talk about another aspect of Jesus' foreverness, his permanency, by using the word permanently. Go back to our verse. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. In other words, it means something very similar, but the Greek word, as you see in your notes, is paramenon, and that is a word that in ancient times simply meant it, 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 it means to remain. It was used of uh, kings who remained in power until they died. The, king, the queen of England remained in power until she died, about 180 years. She was the queen of England, you know, something, something along that line. Uh, throughout that time, dozens of prime ministers came and went, but she remained in office until she died. That's what this word means here. It's a, it is to remain, it is to continue, and therefore Christ's priesthood is unchangeable and it's permanent. Nothing can change it and it will never cease to exist. Now, that leads us to verse 25 and the application. So we've got the content. We know his priesthood is unchangeable. His priesthood is permanent. His priesthood is superior. That leads us to verse 25. Now, I've got I to pause here and get my breath because verse 25 is probably the key verse of the whole book of, of Hebrews. Everything he said up to this point from verse 1 on leads up to verse 25. Everything he'll say after this verse will somehow be connected to verse 25. It's situated almost central in the book itself, and it is the central concept and idea. It's one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Many of you know the verse. You may not have thought about it much, but I hope you will after today. It's one of the great verses of all the Word of God, and we want to do it justice by looking at what he has to say. Let me read it, and then we're going to pull out of this four thoughts, four insights that God gives us in the form of application of his high priestly ministry. He says in verse 25, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's start out by looking at what he accomplished, his accomplishment. He is say, it says here he's able to save forever. Once again, we have a third word that means forever. It could be translated forever. It's, the, uh, it's a different word. It's pantelos. And it's a word that means complete. Where the other words spoke of duration and longevity or permanency, this one adds another wrinkle, another, another connotation. It means complete. And in the King James, the old translation, the King James, 1611, and in the more modern ESV, both trans- translations translate this uttermost. And that really captures, I think, very well the idea, the meaning behind this word, the uttermost. 
It's not simply duration. It's not simply permanency. It is completeness. We have been saved to the uttermost. And I hope I can explain that to you as we move through. In the Old Testament priesthood, the sacrificial system could not ever remove sin. It could cover sin. It could point to the Savior Christ who would come later. It could do those things, but it could never do away with sin. It could not remove it. It could not save anyone. It could only point to the one who could. But Christ could save, and Christ did save, and he saved us completely. He saved us utterly to the very uttermost. That's what he's done. There's no partial salvation here. There is a complete salvation. Nobody is saved in steps. There is a, there, this, and that's a real challenge to some uh, theological systems, some denominations who teach otherwise. A number of years ago, it might have been well over 30 years ago, I spoke in a, a, a class in one of the a public school, or a Christian school here in town. The theology of that particular denomination is that you're never saved at a particular point. You're always in process. There never comes a time when you're truly, completely saved and you know it. Uh, you, you, can, you can be partly saved at your baptism as an infant. You can be saved a little more at your confirmation age 12. And then throughout the rest of your life, you can be uh, progressively being saved. But there never comes that time when you're absolutely, completely, and, and perfectly saved. You're always in process. And I challenge that, class that there has to be a point. There has to be a break, breaking point, a definite time when a, when a person goes from unregenerate to regenerate, from lost to saved. But they didn't get it, and I've never been invited back for the last 35 years. That, that happens a lot, by the way, with my speaking engagements. Another group, another denomination says this, well, you know what? You are saved completely at baptism as an infant. And, but then as you move on throughout life and when you sin, uh, you lose your salvation. And then you have to do something else to gain it back. And you spend your whole life doing that, going back and forth and back and forth. It's kind of like my water glass here. Now, if I had this totally full, if this was an illustration of salvation, if I had it totally full, I would say I'm completely, I have all the water I need. I'm completely saved, spiritually speaking. Okay? But I'm only about half full here which means I'm only half saved. I've lost it. And, and if I fill it up and spill some, then I've got to start over with some more efforts, some more work, some more penance, more whatever to get saved. And that's what the majority of people who claim to be Christian believe. Some of us need a drink. I'm not as, I'm not as saved as what I was a minute ago, you see. What a ridiculous thing. Honestly, how sad would that be if I never know I'm never complete. I'm always in process. I, I, I may be saved today. I may be lost tomorrow. I don't know. And then we come to this marvelous verse 25. And it says he's saved to the uttermost. Complete. This verse, this verse is only, word itself is only found one other time in this form in all the New Testament. It's found in Luke 13, 11. Now you don't need to turn there if you don't want to. I'm going to read a couple verses in Luke 13 that uses this word. A lady comes to Jesus. She is all bent over with a, some kind of illness. 
And in verse 11 it says this, There was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double, and could not straighten up at all. That's our word. At all is this word patellus. And Jesus saw her, and he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. There's our word. Now Jesus, notice here, Jesus healed her completely. He didn't say, look, I know you got a bad back, and I'm going to give you some physical therapy here, and I'm going to kind of straighten you up a little bit. And then, hey, Andrew, do you have that sheet of, of exercises we give people? And Andrew said, oh, yeah, I got that over here somewhere. Here's that sheet. Go home and do these exercises, and you'll get stronger, and your back will get better. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? That would mean Jesus saved, physically saved this person partially. But Jesus never healed anybody partially, completely. And then we take that back to our passage of Scripture here, and we find that Jesus didn't save anybody a little bit. Jesus didn't save anybody almost. Jesus didn't save anybody for a little bit of time. He saved you completely to the uttermost. Your sins are gone. You're in Christ. That's right. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of that. I would also, and you don't have to turn here either, mention these words are in the present tense, speaking of our present salvation as well. And here's a verse of scripture you might write down, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. So this is what he's saying in Hebrews. Not only are you saved at a point in time, completely, utterly, but he keeps you saved by his priestly ministry. That's what keeps you saved. And so as we go back to our passage of Scripture and look at this, we're seeing that the implication is the high priestly ministry of Christ on our, on our behalf keeps us saved moment by moment by moment by moment for eternity. Nothing takes it away. Nothing ever can. And that allows us to do the second thing he's thinking about here, and that is to draw near to Christ, near to God. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Now, when you think of salvation and the, the effects, the benefits of salvation, if you're a Christian, what do you think of? There's a number of things you may think of. For example, uh, you may think of forgiveness of sin. How precious is that? If you know the depths of your own sin, and if you don't, the Lord's going to show it to you somehow. If you know the depths of your own sin and you realize that the Holy God has forgiven you, could anything be more precious than that? I am forgiven, not because I'm good, but because He is. Or, or you might think instead of deliverance from hell, that's a good thought. I don't want to go to hell. Who wants to go to hell? We were delivered from that, but we're also delivered unto heaven. So we not only don't go to hell, we also go to heaven. Those are wonderful benefits of being saved. We know our destiny. And how about being a child of God? As a Christian, I'm a child of God. How, how wonderful to think that I, me, can be a child of the holy God of the universe. I'm in his family. Uh, these are wonderful thoughts. And they get, there's more. But here's another one. And this is, one, this is only fleshed out in all the Bible in the book of Hebrews. And that is that one of the things that we have is a high priest. But the benefit of our salvation is a high priest ministry 
of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, He functions as our high priest and he is our only access to God. We can only enjoy him, we can only know him because of Christ. And he calls us to draw near. Real quickly, go back to chapter 7. Actually, look up chapter 7, verse 19. What the law could not do, Christ has done. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Go down to verse 25. Therefore, he's able to save forever. The law could not make you perfect. Christ could in his eyes by removing your sin and giving you his righteousness. Chapter 10, verse 1. What the, what the sacrifices could not do, Christ did. Verse 1 of chapter 10. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. You can never be made perfect through the sacrificial system. Go over to verse 22 of, that, of chapter 10. And he says this, Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, what the law could not do, what the sacrifices could not do, Christ did for us. Drop over to chapter 12, verses 18 to 22 for a moment. Eighteen twenty eight, uh, twelve eighteen. I, I want to, I'll come to these every once in a while because they're such powerful verses. He, he says to these people, look, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. And to a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a whirlwind. And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of the words which sound was such that they were, those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if, if even a beast touched the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. You've not come to that. That's the Old Testament system. The Old Testament system, you, you, were, you were distanced from God. You couldn't come to his holy mountain. You couldn't go into his holy of holies. You couldn't have your sins forgiven directly. You had to go through a system. It was a fearful system. But he drops down and he says to verse 22, But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and, be, and to be the sprinkled blood, which speaks of better than the blood of Abel. You don't have what the Old Testament people had. The Old Testament people could not come. They could not draw near to God. But you can, through Jesus Christ. And so that is, his nature, is what he's offering us here. The way to God, going back to our passage, was barricaded before Christ. Nothing No sacrifice, no priest, no confession of sin, no amount of obedience could remove the barricade. Mankind was hopelessly cut off from God, but Christ removed the barricade. And now we have access through him to God. We can draw near, and he invites us to draw near. And so we have the first thought is his accomplishment. The second thought is his nature of what he's done. And thirdly, look at the means, through him. Two words, through him. All this is accomplished through him. We still have no right to draw near to God except through him. Let's say I wanted to have an audience with the President of the United States. And so I decided to start giving money to his campaign, going out, passing out brochures, uh, doing, becoming a real groupie. I did all this stuff so I could, 
And then one day I said, you know, I think I'll go see the president. And so I march up to his office and say, I want to see the president. And what I find is myself beat up, maced, thrown out to, to the jail somewhere because I have no right to come to the president, right? But what if I knew his son? What if I went to his son and say, I made friends of his son and went, and the son said, I'll take you to my dad. You can come see my father through me. How do I get in the door to the son? And this is our picture here. We have no right to go before God except that we have that right through him, through the son. We know the son. See, the fallacy of all religions is that we can do something that would enable us to have the right to come before God. If we give some more money, go to more, go to more church services, serve in a little different way, do more good works, then surely he will invite us into his presence. But it doesn't happen that way. Let's say you walk up to the gate of heaven and you come up to the gatekeeper, whoever that is, and you say, here's my, here's my certificates to get into heaven. Here's my baptismal certificate. Here's my church membership at Southern View Chapel, which you recently joined the church and gave the pastor 50 bucks to let you in. And, and you hand that to these people here. That's a joke, by the way. Uh, and it's only 25. We've cut it down since, <laughs> since the pandemic. We're down a little bit. Um, anyway, so you give those, to, and, you, and you have a whole list of things you've done for Jesus Christ. And you hand that all to the gatekeeper, and he looks it over, and he takes up his stamp on your certificate into heaven, and he stamps, rejected. Rejected. You can't come in here. Well, why not? Because you're, you're not righteous. You're not worthy. You cannot come. But then up behind us comes Jesus Christ. And we found, and the, the fact of the matter is we know him. And Jesus says, he's with me. Amen. He's with me. Amen. And he brings us into the very presence of heaven. And the gatekeeper takes his stamp, and he takes in a stamp that says, approved, accepted. Why? Not because of who I am, but because of whom I know. That makes all the difference. One more thought here, and that is the certainty. He closes out this verse since he always lives to make intercession for them. In, verses, in chapter 2, just back up a little bit, chapter 2, verse 17, we find that uh, Christ's high priestly ministry was for our propitiation. Now, if you don't know what that word is, that's a $100,000 word you can impress your neighbors with. But look at this verse for a minute, 217. He says this, therefore, he had to be laid like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a faith, merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ is our high priest to make propitiation. What does that mean? It means that he has satisfied the righteous demands the righteous justice of God. That's what that word means. God's righteous justice has been satisfied by Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, we find that he's our high priest for a different reason. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so now he's our high priest so that at our deepest hour of discouragement, our deepest sorrow, our deepest pain, and especially when we recognize our own personal sinfulness, that he stands ready and willing to be our high priest 
to give us grace and mercy at that hour of need. Then we go back to our passage here and we see in chapter 7, now he's our high priest to intercede for us so that we will always be with him. He always lives to intercede for us. Now we want to be careful here. He is not really saying that Jesus is sitting in heaven praying all the time for us. That he's interceding as we think of interceding praying. Rather, he's talking about his life. That his very presence at the right hand of the Father is his intercession. We come to the Father through him. He is the door to God. He's the door to eternal life. He's the bridge to, to life. And there he is at the right hand of the Father in that sense interceding for us. It's not his prayers that keep us saved. It is his person. It is Jesus Christ. Do you know this Jesus Christ then? You have no right to go into his presence. You have no right to take of his invitation of drawing near unless you come through Jesus Christ and you know him. An unnamed poet wrote a poem that I repeat about every decade here that I think nailed this perfectly. And so I want to read that to you. It's called My Advocate. He said, I sinned, and straightway, post haste, Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of clay and sod has sinned. Tis true that he has named thy name, but I demand his death. For thou hast said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled as justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can a righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night. And every word he spoke, O God, was true. Then quickly, one arose from God's right hand, before whose glory the angels veiled their eyes. And he spoke. Each dot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner dies, but wait. Suppose his guilt were all transferred to me, and that I paid his penalty. Behold my hands and my side and my feet. One day I was made sin for him, and I died, that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan fled away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love. For every word my dear Lord spoke, Oh God, was true. Do you know this Savior? When you stand before the gatekeeper of heaven, will you be able to say, I know him. And I come to God because I know the one who saved me. If you do not know this great high priest, we encourage you to seek us out today. Let us show you clearly from the word of God how you can know Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this marvelous passage of Scripture just, it just sings to my heart, speaks so clearly to us. Lord, we are, we are really dumbfounded. As this little poem said, oh, we, we deserve hell. We deserve your justice, not your mercy. And yet, Lord, you died for us. You paid the price for our sin. And you invite us now to come before you by faith alone, to receive your grace, to receive your forgiveness and to become a child of God. Father, I pray today for this congregation. Uh, There's a lot of people here, Lord, 
And a lot of these people, some of these people in a way, may not really know you as Savior. May you speak to their heart right now, Lord. May you open them to the truth. May they see their need for Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.